sports science, strength conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Hey everybody, I'm going to pause the show real quick and announce something brand new to the Decoding Excellence show. We've created an online community that has exclusive content that you will not be able to get just by navigating to the site alone. If you subscribe today, you will have access to our private podcast, online video lecture series, brand new digital content that we are creating to help support you as a strength and conditioning coach, a new practitioner in the high performance field. You do not want to miss this material. It's going to help you in every facet of your career. Head over to adamringler.com and join the insiders today. Hey, everybody. We have a phenomenal show for you this week. Arnett, I'm joined with Dan Howells. This was a fun conversation and a really interesting one because we get into talking about his experiences at the England Institute of Sport, the London Wasps. We talk about the England Rugby Sevens and his most recent stint at the Houston Astros and just lessons learned from every one of those stops. We talk about communication styles, how to deliver greater value through coaching the coaches and collaboration. This was an amazing conversation to have with a experienced high performance practitioner. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention a new way that he is giving back to the high performance industry by the work and interactive workshops that he's doing at Collaborate Sports. Without further ado, here is my phenomenal conversation with experienced high performance practitioner and coach, Dan Howells. Dan, welcome to the Decoding Excellence podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm uh, a little cold. It's winter in, in England at the moment, and it's taken some adjusting from recently moving back from Florida, but um, happy to be back amongst family and friends in this uh, somewhat interesting and difficult time for, for us. So yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to get this one on the books. I know we've we've had this scheduled, or at least I've had this scheduled for a while, and you know, I've got to see not only the work that you've done and sort of the, the history of your impact within high performance sport across multiple organizations and and sports and just a diverse sort of population set and you know was excited to to have you come on so that we can discuss discuss a little bit about your journey and about some of the lessons that you've learned so um, first and foremost thank you for for participating but uh, for the listening audience that might be less familiar with your organizational stops and your history and maybe just a little bit of your background. Do you mind giving them just an introduction to who you are and and some of the journey that you've undertaken as you've navigated your high performance career? Absolutely. Yeah, the yeah, there's going to be plenty of people that probably haven't heard my name before. I come from a um, rugby background in terms of uh, high performance uh, prior to moving over to the States to work in baseball, which is a different jump. Uh, people are making it more and more often these days. Um, but I guess the jump from one extreme sport to another, uh, especially having not had experience myself as an athlete or coach in baseball, is an interesting narrative. So that's the most recent organizational jump I've made. And I'm back in the UK, I was working prior to rugby in Olympic, Paralympic sports in a, in a big multi-sport environment, which I think was fundamental for, for my development. I can't talk highly enough about those sort of like five to six years of as a developing practitioner and then just started to narrow my my focus onto individual sports and, and that journey was through uh, rugby and, and then into baseball most most recently no that's that is awesome and I mean, we're going to dive into a, a little bit of you know not maybe not necessarily the details of each organization but just sort of that journey as you've navigated from a broad, diverse, you know, multi-athlete skill set and uh, population to navigating to more of the individual sport. But I wanted to kind of maybe rewind the personal tape and start with, you know, the genesis, if you will, of, you know, of, of everything, every vocation, you know, from it could be engineering, from teaching to industry what led you into coaching? What was maybe particular moments or the catalyst or the journey into that personal decision that we all make at some point along our young 
whether academic career or personal sort of development that said, you know, this would be really fascinating for me to kind of go into and jump into, you know, high performance sport or, or whatever sort of uh, um, interplay within athletics. Yeah, the, the turning point for me was going from wanting to be a physiologist to a strength and conditioning coach. Um, I had an interest in training because I was a rugby player. And so naturally I was in the gym and, and this was in the infancy of SSC, I guess, in the early 2000s, you know, high performance in terms of professional SSC anyway in the UK. And so I was going through very generic programs and I thought that strength and conditioning was very generic in nature, that, that you know, you just picked up one program and applied it to other people in other sports most likely. Um, but I, I wasn't curious enough at that at that point in my career. I was going through the formal roots of academia and education and I guess I was letting the roots of academia define me and my thinking as opposed to stopping and looking outside that and being curious to other ways to do it. So it wasn't until I, I actually came to the States the first time around to do a post-grad internship with the US ski team and just saw the the funky sort of, to me at the time, these sort of out there stuff that they were doing, but it was just simply looking at eccentric muscle action um, and, and different ways to strengthen um, eccentric muscle strength development specific to skiing and then looking at slalom skiers. And so it was that moment that I actually went as this sort of like jack of all trades intern and got really curious about, well, if we can do this in skiing, then maybe I'm missing the point a little bit here from the strength conditioning perspective. So that really got me curious about what you can do to influence the body. I started to think about, you know, stress and adaptation and, and actually then everything in my academia kind of made more sense to me. You know, I was interested in physiology because I was being taught physiology, underpinning physiology. And at that point, strength conditioning wasn't a mainstay of the academic route that I was in. And suddenly I was like, wow, okay, that makes more sense now. That from a stimulus response or stimulus adaptation point of view, I can see that. And then, you know, I recognized, I guess, at the time that, you know, my self-awareness of the fact that I was pretty good in groups. I could take the lead in coaching and, and, and warm-ups quite well. And, and I wasn't phased by that. Um, and I really enjoyed helping people. So all those things together really put me towards the passion of coaching. And I personally have a, a, a philosophy that coaching doesn't have to be about coach to athlete. It can be peer-to-peer. -peer. It can be that person who's next to you, it can be the physio that you work with or the athletic trainers that you can inherently help influence their thought processes or their actions and their decision-making. Um, not manipulate, that would dictate that you were controlling, but influence in the sense of try to help them to help you through a process. And so I, I, I very of late, especially taken to coaching being uh, much more than just you and your athletes. Um, I think it goes you can coach up in an organization, for example, influence up. Um, and that was never more present than in, in an organization like the Astros or baseball because it's so big and has such a front office presence. So yeah, I'm really fascinated by coaching as a concept beyond just coach athlete. One thing I, w I wanted to certainly poke on a little bit is that, op that, that moment of time that you spent at US uh, snow and ski or ski and snow uh, regarding just that, that intercollaborative nature of essentially high performance. And I, I look back on the time and I know organizations were, were sort of leveraging not only data, but also this sort of interdisciplinary sort of mindset of collaboration across different departments, both physiology versus coaching, technical, tactical. And I look at, you know, that organization, at least in America, um, and I know, again, internationally as well, but that looked like a very much like a genesis of beginning uh, that sort of what we now know, at least within America as sort of high performance sport, where we, we start to have more interplay between different departments, both communication, between transparency of data sharing. And I look at a lot of practitioners in the field, professionally, collegiately, organizations, directors, and they they seem to have some type of uh, um, time, not necessarily just at U.S. ski and snowboard, but that sort of 
opportunity where they're first exposed to a more of collaborative nature across what they individually contribute to the system. And it's more about what we all contribute to it. So, you know, I, I know you did that sort of postgraduate SNC internship, but that lessons, were there any particular lessons from that opportunity that you carried forward into British Ski and Snowboard or the English Institute of Sport or any of the other organizations, Astros or anything like that, that you particularly feel resonate uh, with your coaching career? I think looking back to that particular organization, fantastic people. And you look at, you know, you've, you've got, um, you know, the, the, the director now, performance director there was actually the physiologist with me at that time. He's gone full circle through. Um, and he's he's come back now, and it, it's a great place to be. And I actually think that the remote nature of it forces communication and forces collaboration. So not everybody can be in control of their athlete in the way that potentially you can be in college systems or pro sports like the NFL, like day in, day out, same people in the same room all the time. You know, you've got different skiers off on different calendars. You've got different coaches I mean, wait, and you've got to relinquish a little bit of control. Um, and as coaches, we tend to have that streak, don't we? You know, that can, you know, um, control freak element. So, so I think that, that looking at that, I saw a, a group of individuals in the same office from physiology, nutritional dietetics, physiology, uh, biomechanics, strength conditioning, all in the same office, uh, of which I was in as well. And that ability to share ideas across the office was was paramount. And I just sort of sat there and observed the interplay of just casual questions. Again, curiosity. What if we could do this? What do you think to that? And it was a growth-orientated environment. And um, that was awesome to see. So ever since that point, and kind of epitomized in, in an organization like the Institute of Sport, that was also remote in some senses of the word because you had practitioners all over the country working for the same organization but allocated to different sports and even those sports at that time were somewhat decentralized required communication and required you to drop the ego quite early on you needed to work together for the greater good of an athlete and i had i remember being 23 really rookie being asked by you know someone who's now working in, in the nba I uh, was working for sprint cycling, GB cycling, and, and he would ring me 10 years my senior as such and ask my opinion on what I thought about the athlete that I was working with. Because he knew, I knew better than anyone, you know, and, and I didn't expect that. I expected to be told. And I think that that is something the, the, the ski team did very well was that the hierarchy didn't come into it. Time spent in position didn't come into it. Everyone was worth their weight in gold that's why they were employed and so that to diffuse that collaborative component is it's just a misnomer for me like, why would you do that and you do tend to see that a little bit in some cultures around earning your stripes and, and um, time spent in post dictates your ability to speak up and um, yeah so ever since that point I've always been collaborative I've always been um, looking for opportunity to be comfortable sharing my thoughts sharing my um, not concerns, but ideas and be open to having them shut down because they are, they can be proven to be not the right course of action and that it isn't held against me. You know, it's just that we're trying to, to, you know, create the optimum outcome, basically. And we're, we're basically operating in a performance solutions environment, aren't we? Like people ask me about how did you find baseball compared to rugby? Was it not difficult? And I'm like, well, Actually, it was probably easier because I was totally unbiased and I could just look at the sport, what it was. So yeah, that's yeah, that whole multidisciplinary team of uh, approach, the growth mindset, and the, that everybody has value was something that epitomized my experiences at the US ski team to start with. You know, I think that's there's a number of different things that you shared, even within just that, that I want to at least discuss, right? And one of the things was that you talked about obviously those experiences and the hierarchical nature or maybe a little bit of the flat organization nature that allows you know junior staff members to be able not necessarily to question but to feel like they have a voice at the table 
and sort of that environmental constraint that allowed that collaborative nature. And with that said, you know, and not necessarily within your own organizational and, and, and professional sport stops, but what do you think are some of the barriers uh, that are restricting, whether it's known or whether it's unknown, whether it's environmental, uh, that might be restricting some of that collaborative nature across departments and, and those barriers that might exist uh, that's preventing some of this uh, interplay between different departments, practitioners, and people um, that you see common across professional or, or uh, amateur sport. Yeah, yeah, and I won't mean to ruffle feathers here, but some of it is, is traditional. Like, and I see that from moving from two different cultural backgrounds. You know, like the the UK to to the US, and the probably the traditional side of it is, yeah, I am your boss, and you are employed by me and you need to follow instructions and you need to prove to me you're worthy of trust and responsibility. But, but for me, I step away from that and say, well, that, that's the interview process. That's the, the vetting process that, that I wouldn't want to be bringing in somebody that I didn't feel, my gut instinct at least, that I could, could not trust at a certain level because I need them to come in and do a job. And a measure of, of me as a leader would be if I was removed from the situation, could the team operate without me? And so I would say, if you look at some situations, if you remove a leader, um, could that program run without them? And if not, then they're a dictator, you know, they're or a facilitator of processes. Um, so I think that's one of it. And, it, and the other one is, is then is self-awareness. So if the individuals cannot understand that, you know, how they are coming across, maybe in the controlling sense or in the hierarchical sense, um, that's limiting, but you've got to you've got to make mistakes to create change or learn. So we go through this process as a coach, and we in, we push our athletes to experience failure in movement to maximize their feeling of what success is or what what leads to success. But they have to make some mistakes. Yet we're not necessarily doing that with our staff. Right, we're just telling them how to operate. That they should do this this particular way every single day, um, and that doesn't lead to any growth. We're, and then it, so then it comes down to questioning as well. So from a leadership point of view, using questions, say, okay, what what do you, what do you think about this? You know, where what am I missing? And, and showing vulnerability as a leader that also instill instills trust in the group below you, young practitioners. They think, okay, I can have a voice here. I it may not be the answer or the final say, but I can at least contribute and have a shared value in the process or shared contribution to the process. So, I mean, that definitely comes from the people in leadership roles. Um, and, you know, I've stepped into environments where people, there's been awkward silences because they're not comfortable being asked. That. And we get there eventually, but I'm persistent because I want them to collaborate with me. I want, I recognize that I don't have all the answers. Uh, in fact, I don't. I think I have a curious mind. I definitely don't have the skill sets to find the answers at times, and and I have to facilitate people into those positions. But you know, what I do think I'm pretty good at is bringing a team together, you know, and getting them to operate together and come come up with optimal ideas. So yeah, I think some of it's tradition, and some of it is sort of maybe lack of self awareness about the way that you're controlling the situation limits growth. It definitely guarantees success in what you want, but that what that success looks like will not change. That's the problem. And for me, I want people I work with and the environments I work with to be thinking about the future, the foresight of where can we get to? And where do we want to be going forward? And I'm willing to make some mistakes along the way um, and have some small errors of judgment that aren't in, you know, too impactful to get us there. It's very easy to follow a particular recipe for quote unquote success or program design or implementation of whatever modality across practice, across an industry. But, you know, while that's replicatable in some nature and delivers a consistent delivery of said modality or, or practice, one of the things that it does is it absolves maybe not just originality, but innovation. It absolves ownership perhaps you know from junior coaches or those practitioners that might be delivering uh that and and what it also does is it 
you know, absolves failure in some respects. And as we know, you know, in sort of wow, it's sport and it's driven through athletics, like from a pedagogy standpoint, we need to have some of those lessons that you learn only through failure to really sort of uh, evoke, okay, well, how do self-questioning, right? Self-awareness of what do I need to do differently? How do I need to prepare differently? What went wrong? The debrief after a, a session or, or a failure event or whatever. So that, you know, there's some personal discovery. There's some professional discovery. There's that collaborative nature of, of reaching both horizontally, but also vertically to peers and saying, how can I do this a little bit better? Um, and that's, that's an amazing sort of gem within what you shared. So you talked about your own personal sort of sense of bringing people together and, you know, some of the personal strength, that self-awareness that you have about what you do exceptionally well. What do you think are some of the resources or, you know, your own lessons learned that allowed you, enabled you, that drove you to feel like you had that, uh, that ability to bring people together? And it could be resources. It could be, you know, just personal lessons you've learned or industry or, you know, education. But what was some of the things that helped you actually develop that leadership ability? Yeah, I mean, you talk about saying I'm self-aware. It's, it's, it's difficult because I'm, I'm, it's wrong. It's a, it's a false statement, isn't it? It just, I just mean, basically, I'm more self-aware than I was. And I hope that in another five years, I'm more self-aware. And that that's never ending because to say I have, I, I am self-aware is almost a full stop statement. So I need to, you know, I want to caveat that and say, I know that I'm in a better position than I was five years ago, which is better than five years prior to that. And the only thing that really helps you along the way is being true to yourself in the set, in the sense of wanting to develop and therefore trying things and therefore being willing to make mistakes. And so I was reasonably uncomfortable making mistakes in my early career in the first year because I felt like it was a bad reflection on me. And you've got to make a pretty damn big mistake for it to be catastrophic, if I'm honest, in, in our field. And so I was, once I realized that I, as soon as I recognized something didn't go to plan or could have gone a bit better, just what could I have done differently? That's it. Right? Just what could I have done differently? And if I'm asking that of myself and I'm thinking about doing it differently next time, as long as I'm in the moment cognizant that that situation is happening again and I need to try something different, then I'm creating learning. It's the same as motor patterning or um, you know, you know, movement quality or skill acquisition. It needs repetition. But if you aren't focused and you're not in tune with your body and you aren't raising kinesthetic awareness, you're not going to retrain those motor patterns so or ingrain them. And it's the same here. It's just learning, isn't it? So, yeah, I'm I'm on a journey of self-awareness and it's ever-evolving. Um, there is no particular moment other than the fact that when I was willing to make mistakes, I'm willing to realize that my way potentially at that point wasn't good enough or could be better, is a better phrase, then I was able to um, try new things and recognize the best strategy the best, at the right time. With that said, you know, and and being on the journey of self-awareness, right? A never-ending journey, a never-ending journey of personal development or continuing education or just, you know, development as a human being, not necessarily just as a practitioner in sport, but just as a general evolving species. What are the things, techniques or habits that you found that allows you to have that reflection, if there are any, you know, personal, like personal yeah, habits or things that you've done that's really helped you better reflect or better learn or, you know, a resources that you might have leaned towards, but even just the habits that one might possess that allows you to dig a little bit deeper and develop as a person as a whole. Yeah, I think it, the big thing I would say is feedback. I remember being part of... Um, the process of appraisals in in one organization uh, very early on in my career and 360 reviews peer reviews and then being done very well to the sense that like i could i in anticipation of that feedback was concerned because i felt not somewhat threatened uh, in that sense but once i got it there was again some light bulb moments but i didn't think about it like that you know i didn't think about that situation in that way and so again, another 
moment of realizing that people perceive things in different ways. And as coaches, just like we can control the way somebody moves, we can control the situation in the sense of well, the way people might think. So, you know, if I'm going to say to you, can I offer you some feedback is very different to, I need to give you feedback. Like I may deliver the same detail, but your resistance on one of those situations can be much more heightened than on another one, especially if I ask you for permission. Do you mind if I give you some feedback? And you, you, you know, I offer, offer for you to say yes, then that's an easier situation. So same situation, different perceptions there with different types of devil in the detail of the words. But, you know, asking for feedback ever since that point, so obviously that was forced on me somewhat, but recognizing that the feedback I was given hit me from a different perspective. I could see things from a different light. It was a bit of a light bulb moment. So now I'm actually seeking feedback from people who I manage or I manage. Hey, tell me where I could have done that better. I come out of that meeting. What message did I deliver really well there? Or like what what things could I improve if I'm going to deliver that again next week? Um, um, oh, even just being open with myself, I felt like that didn't go as well as planned. What? Why do you think I fell short? And equally, like, you know, what am I doing well at the minute? Or where are you feeling comfortable in this situation? So showing yourself or showing yourself to be vulnerable as the people that you're line managing, I think, is a really critical trait and skill um, because it empowers trust, I think, you know. Um, so, yeah, the feedback element. And and I, I've just, you know, done some stuff with people I've been working with from a mentorship point of view or, or coach development point of view. And a ton of it has been around asking for feedback. And they've fed back to me that, that, that some of the perspectives they're getting, they had never thought of. And if they hadn't asked for that feedback, they'd be stuck in that same process. So I think it's really critical that we, we ensure that we understand that we don't know what we don't know. And that's based on knowledge. But then even when we have that knowledge, we don't know what we don't know in terms of context around that information. And that the environment we step into, whether I'm in a rugby environment, baseball environment, or one-on-one environment, same information can hold true. Knowledge can hold true. It can be misconstrued. I could deliver it in the same way, but it could be misperceived because of the rugby culture versus the baseball culture, all of those things. And so feedback is 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 for seeking clarity, basically. Um, so that for me is the biggest resource that we can offer ourselves. And I like the fact that you said offer ourselves um, because I feel like there is a perception, there's a number of things that you shared there, but there's a perception that that when you give feedback, that it's, you know, the recipient of said feedback is is the beneficiary of it. But truly, you know, if the recipient of that feedback absorbs it, acts on it, and takes that information, the entire organization benefits from it as well, because, you know, there's a greater outcome uh, that's driven through that person. But I love the fact that you, you framed sort of your response in the nature of asking for permission to provide that feedback and that, that sense of um, ownership or autonomy, or uh, the fact that, you know, if they were, you know, from a system standpoint, not ready to receive that feedback that, you know, in theory, they could uh, they could you know decline the feedback offer, which would only be self limiting in some respects. But there's a phenomenal book by Douglas Stone called "Thanks for the Feedback." That, as you were talking about that, talked about thinking of the recipient of said feedback before you, as a mentor, as a leader, provides that for him. And it just it like it gave me a little bit of a flashback of uh, of said book. You've might have answered this within that response, but I just want to kind of sort of give a little bit of a catalyst. This, and I think I think you've yeah you you've certainly dove down this, but outside of maybe asking or solicitating feedback, which is something that I think a junior coach or even a to be honest any coach should actively seek out throughout their career. What advice would you give? to the young practitioner just starting off, you know, as they start their own personal journey, they look to somebody like you that's been at multiple organizations have done this, have, have had, you know, what we might define as quote unquote, a successful career. However, one might want to define success. That means something different for everybody. But like, what advice 
should they active? What, what would you tell them if you were just on a one-on-one basis of saying, hey, let me help you in your sort of career this is the best uh, best sort of piece of advice I could give you. Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of doing that of late anyway with, with sort of bespoke coaching of individuals. And only this morning I've got somebody who's in sports science and, and recognizes that there's, a, you know, he's going to be jumping into some baseball environments that that there's not the sports science that I can potentially help him with in this situation, but it's the coaching of of his environment. So how can he coaches environment sports science into into certain situations and so um yeah he's an example of somebody that we're, we're going to go and work on you know some profiling and some personality and mindset and for those that know me at the moment will have probably heard me talk about this numerous times recently and think that like what what bandwagon is he jumping on but this for me is something i was aware of at the age of 25 it's just that i haven't put it in a drawer i've been very aware of it ever since I did, you know, profile myself because of the impact it had. And I could recognize that different people um, receive information in different ways. So we talk about coaching as cues, right? Extrinsic or external cues and internal cues. And we talk about different ways of learning, you know, visual learners or learning through experience. And we don't think about the peer-to-peer as much in that. And also with our athletes, how do they, what's the best way to use communication? Is it that I want to stick to facts? Is it that I need to ask for their opinion on things? Is it that, that I, they want to feel part of the collaboration of this project? Or do they just need to be told how to do it? You know, Is it that certain, certain people are going to have certain ways of thinking around mindset as well? Um, they're going to be more risk averse, so they're good to highlight the barriers in a project. And some people are optimistic who are going to see opportunities that I may not. And so, therefore, how do I, not only do I communicate to those people, but how do I move my mindset and my thinking to those areas that I'm not preference towards? And so that's given me a real different perspective. So that's what I'm trying to do with coaches is is start with yourself. I think uh, <laughs> you know, one of the, the strap lines I've been using recently is, you know, personal development starts with yourself and, and raising self-awareness of where you're at at the moment on your journey. And that's a really great tool because everybody can have light bulb moments because it's so indicative or, or reflective of uh, of themselves. But we tend to just focus on our strengths being our strengths as opposed to potential blind spots. And you know, I know that overplaying my preferences means I can be quite domineering and demanding when actually I just want to be efficient. I want to be direct with my work. Um, so I, I tend to start there when you talk about resources and try and get people to to buy into the concept that you've got to look at yourself and look at some areas that you could move your move yourself and adapt or flex your styles because coaching is is acting really right it's flicking a switch to be able to go from one type of preference or preferential style in behavior to another because if we're not we're rigid. We're, we're not going to be as somebody who's going to be seen as flexible and adaptable and even approachable at times because we're rigid in our ways. And that'll have strengths in some day, on some days or some situations, but actually pitfalls on others. Whereas if you can be somebody who can move and flex style, um, I think that's critical. And the same in coaching. Do I need to raise my tone and flick a switch of accountability to the group? Do I need to have an empathetic tone and put my arm on somebody's shoulder and ask them how they're doing? Do I need to pull someone aside and have a quiet word that their behavior is not as expected against our values and do they understand why and nobody else ever hears about it or has that been the fourth time that's happened so I need to make a situation here to set an example to the rest of the group because it's having a cascade of events on the team you know all these different ways to approach the communication and expectation so yeah that's where I would start um if it was possible, you know, if people had that at their, at their, their disposal. I think that personality rigidity, you know, will lend itself to applying a particular style of coaching or, you know, whatever vocation one might be in that limits the flexibility to apply communication styles, personality differences, uh, styles of mo- like uh, delivery 
across different people. Because again, like as you talked about with education, about ways people receive feedback, what they particularly need in that sort of moment, that it might be that quiet hand on a shoulder that they need, or it might be the more of the, the stern talking to that allows them to sort of be motivated. Um, and that flexibility or chameleon-like nature is is really a necessity, but also a way that really exceptional practitioners can bend and mold and shape and shape shift their personality into what the, the environment needs, not necessarily just apply a one size fits all approach. You know, we talk about that with program design that we really want to bespoke programs. So that's it's a, on a level of individuality um, that's specific for the physiology of each athlete. But what often goes missed is that we should also try to do that within the personality demands of each individual athlete that as you have that development of a relationship and you know sort of some of the drivers of personality and what what motivates people and how they learn that that becomes a uh, uh, a tool that you can use within your own personal tool set to have a better delivery of the information you're trying to share with someone and that, and that you, you said tool that, like that's that's critical. It is just a tool. But like anything, whether it's a you know a VBT device, all VBT is doing is giving you a reference point, right? If it's GPS, it's giving you a reference point. If it's uh, yeah any of that technology or data, it, we're so consumed by it. But all they are, all it really is is a reference point for you to make a decision or judge something against. That's what it is. And each environment, that same bit of information is going to mean something different within the context of that environment. And then. Um, but it's the same here with understanding like the way you make decisions under pressure or the way you express yourself from a behavioral point of view. Understanding yourself, it's a tool to help you understand yourself and, and give you a framework from which to move your mindset and control your behavior and influence and, and, and adapt, which, is, which I think is critical because we would adapt our decision-making based on that BBT information or GPS. Well, the same here. If somebody... If I'm presenting some information to an individual that maybe has changed, then maybe I need to change the, the way I'm delivering that information um, or the story behind it. So, yeah, it's a tool. It's not. A, it doesn't define what you do. And, I, and that's another thing with certifications, right, from a technical point of view. Uh, our coaches are so consumed by the number of certifications they can do. And it's not as prevalent in the UK. Like, it's... There's some courses, but a lot of people go on more bespoke things because it's they feel it's more real world. You know, I stepped into an environment in the US and and the, the feeling of personal development was, can I have some money to go on this course? The problem with that is you're buying into a product which tends to be the answer for everything. That that tool or that well, that tool, that that course, that product is going to answer everything that you throw at it. It's trying to sell itself. And there's not much real world to it. So you have to then apply that to the real world. And remember, it's just a tool to resource at the right time, not every time, you know? And I think that's a problem people have is I'm going to do this course and it's going to become the mainstay of everything I'm doing, you know, as opposed to contextualizing, going, okay, I'm going to apply that with that one athlete this one time uh, because that's the most appropriate modality to create impact and change. And that's coaching, right? Coaching is the ability to affect change. And if I'm affecting change, it doesn't just mean in motor patterns. It means in awareness or behavioral style, you know, in their behavior or their professionalism or their learning. I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of, again, poke on what you just shared there. I, For me, I recall a conversation I had with my mentor or at least with you know, a, a coach that was really, really influential to my development in my young career. And he spoke that we, we talked about impact, right? How to have the largest impact on your athletes or your coaches. And he was very adamant about really trying to coach the coaches, you know, rather than just also the athletes, right? There's the delivery that we have on the floor within our own, uh, within our own practice, but he made it very much his personal mission to go and help the technical tactical sport coaches in navigating behaviors, navigating not necessarily practice design or anything like that, but just helping coach the coaches 
so that they could, as a vehicle, I guess, deliver more value through them. And what I started with, I'd be remiss to to not share or talk a little bit about that same impact that I think that you're having across our industry. You know, you very much have your foot within professional sport and continuing it and pushing down sort of that line. But what I find fascinating, not both fascinating and also encouraging as an industry is how you're giving back to coaches, how you're providing additional value to our industry um, through what you're doing with Collaborate Sports. So with that said, if, you know, could you, for those that might be, you know, unfamiliar with it, could you provide a little bit of information about how you're helping coaches and what sort of you're giving, you're coaching the coaches and what sort of value you're you're driving through that? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, my step into baseball, first and foremost, drove, drove that um, hobby, really, like the side hobby. So coming into baseball from a rugby background, in the rugby background, it was 25 um, players, five members of staff. And I, I put out a post today about lines of communication that a friend had shared with me. Um, and, you know, within five people, there's only, a, you know, 10 lines of communication, crossover communication. But amplify that to 13 s coaches alone in an MLB organization, 15 ATs. Yeah, there's 150 player development staff, including scouts. So that's a ridiculous number of lines of communication. And so it wasn't that my coaches in that environment didn't have the technical knowledge. Yes, they were on a journey of development. They had lots to learn still, but they still had good underpinning knowledge. Um, but they just weren't being able to communicate it, sell what we were trying to do. And I guess my focus became, how do we create links between what you want to do from a process or a system or a method? And how do you either sell it, because we're salesmen as coaches really, or how do you articulate it without it being a gut instinct or an opinion? Take out, be clever about it, take out opinion. And show objectivity to athletes because essentially all they want to know is, is it going to help? Right. And as coaches, inherently, we're the same. Is it going to help me be better as a coach? And so I started, as you, you, you've coined the phrase, actually coaching the coaches. And so some of that came from a personal skills perspective. That was where the big shortfall was. Like, why is it that people who speak fluent Spanish can't break through to our Spanish players, but the, myself and a couple of others who are learning Spanish? And what I noticed, or learning Spanish would get through a little bit better. What I noticed was they valued the, the effort to try and communicate with them and the vulnerability of us making a joke about ourselves or laughing at ourselves with our inability to communicate with them that put them at ease because of their cultural backgrounds of family and, and trust. And um, Whereas the individuals who spoke Spanish were just dictating in Spanish. And, and I sort of coined into that, honed into it quite quickly. I was like, okay. The detail really, really does matter here. Really does matter. And, you know, again, it's that switch. What style of communication do I need to switch to? So I started off on the personal skills um, side of it and moved it into coaching young coaches and putting them through a couple of programs now where they could share the burden of cost because I think that as an industry, we do a ton of stuff for free. Yeah, I'm happy to do stuff for free for myself. But I've got people asking me to look at their resume and CVs covering that as I've never met before. And I'm like, look, I'll give you this one bit of advice, but it would be a disservice to the people that I do work with, you know, from a paid point of view, if I was to give you this information. Like, if you want more, then I'm willing to help you. But at this point, this is my basic advice. And people do reach out for for something for nothing. And I don't think we help ourselves in that sense. So I wanted to create a platform that allowed developing practitioners something where they could share the cost, but actually get more than just me. So we do group sessions. And whether it's the interactive webinars where we have 20 people online, everything has a collaborative theme. And that collaborative theme is to network, share thoughts, share perspective, experiences, and get more minds in the room, basically. Um, And it started on the personal skills journey, and now it's moved into the technical focus as well. So we 
have multiple streams of, of support that I'm trying to push towards. Um, both young and experienced coaches now, different people have different needs, um, so different levels of support. But it's become a, a nice hobby. You know, people are talking about side hustles through COVID, but um, essentially I, it was a coping mechanism for me. I, I went from coaching coaches and coaching athletes to not coaching coaches anymore because there was no reference point any, anymore. We'd exhausted it. <laughs> we were just sitting there waiting. And so I was like, okay, how can I help some other people with some of this detail that we've really pushed on in the baseball world in our organization? And um, yeah, it just sort of, sort of took off. So I'm really interested in performance sport and having a real big impact in performance sport. And this for me is, can I help my young practitioners in ways like this? And, and yeah, I mean, and I'm enjoying it, to be honest. I think spoken like a, a true coach. I don't think what we do is often binary. There's so much of what we can offer that is in conjunction with what we are currently doing. Like you're, you're very much has this foot within the organizations and, and professional sport. And it's a lot of people sometimes think it's one or the other that you're doing this or, or working on something else. And it's like, no, we can run a podcast. We can work on creating a side hobby. We can work on creating an ecosystem or a platform that offers value to young coaches and, and even experienced coaches through technical, tactical delivery of skill sets or these things. But it's not one or the other. Like a lot of the times, this efforts can, can be expanded across time. In transparency, one of the coaches I communicate with daily is a beneficiary of those interactive workshops. And, and in Slack, which is the primary communication tool, that I, I use to you know continue to communicate with coaches that I've worked with, um, that's still part of sort of my network. He spoke incredibly highly of the opportunity of what he learned from global practitioners and sort of that workshop. And I just think it's a tremendous value to bring people's diverse, not only knowledge, but just shared experiences uh, across what they've learned, what they found successful, the failures, but something that you've shared all across the show is that shared vulnerability that we need to have as practitioners, that release of ego of, of saying, saying that, you know, I'm human, I'm going to make mistakes, I'm going to be vulnerable and share those mistakes. And we all benefit when we learn from people's failures, like you talked about earlier in the show that, you know, just being able to learn from others' failures is a way, and your own failures is a way that you can grow and, and really jumpstart your personal development uh, throughout this. So again, thanks for thanks for sharing that little piece. So if somebody was interested in learning more about that work, um, particularly that that sort of side hobby that you have that you're you know delivering that value to our industry, where would be the best place for them to find out more information? Yeah, the, the website's the the primary place. It's www dot collaborate sports.com um the you know we have i'm running monthly interactive webinars so when i say interactive i'm trying to get away from the theme of uh i talk you listen as a, as a presenter like it's typically conference or online conference style and create some interactive components so those are listed on there we've got the next three to four months up, uh, lined up and some good practitioners on there and and i'm just starting to release the highlights packages as well, which will start in January. So people can do a um, sort of a pay-per-view option in the sense of, you know, watch back some of the highlights. They miss out on the interactive component because they're not live. And that really does bring the networking and the meeting of other practitioners together, which is which is great, which is the main theme. But also not everyone can make a live event because of the time constraints. And, and I understand that. So trying to make all those past events accessible as well. Um, and that website's got different um, personal development options on there as well. And I'm, I'm very approachable, you know, LinkedIn, you can find me as Dan Howells on there. Um, and I've, I think ever since coming back to the UK, I have needed to be in quarantine for uh, 10 days. So I set myself the task of having people reach out to me. So I've actually, I think I've got through this morning was number 28 over the last 10 days of, of young practitioners who reached out to me on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. So very approachable. And I always try and reply to people with some um, advice or some impact, 
where possible. So yeah, but the website would be the, the first starting place. Awesome. Well, one thing that we'll do is we'll make sure to include that website and, and links to social media so that any of coaches that might be listening to this show in our audience that if they're interested, they can navigate to that or, or invoke a conversation and, and begin that sort of process of just learning about some of the resources that you're putting out or just sharing a conversation between a coach and another. So uh, Dan, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and just sharing not only the lessons that you've learned from your various professional sports stops and, and different organizations that you've been on, but talking about some of the ways that coaches can continue to get better uh, through you know this ever never-ending process of self-discovery and, and learning and vulnerability and uh, delivery of uh, messaging. It's been a phenomenal insights from you, Dan. So just thank you so, so much for coming on the show. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. That is going to be it for this episode of the Decoding Excellence show. I want to thank my guest, Dan Howells, for coming on the show and sharing some of the lessons that he's learned and some of the wisdom that he's accrued from his various stops at the England Institute of Sport, the London WASP, England Rugby Sevens, and then crossing the Atlantic Ocean and joining us in the United States at the Houston Astros. I also wanted to thank him for sharing some of the things and ways that he's delivering value to the high performance industry as a whole through the work that he's doing also with Collaborate Sports. If you are interested in learning more about the work that he's doing, head over to collaboratesports.com. You can also email at info at collaboratesports.com and you can find his contact information and social media handles at Dan on Twitter and most likely everywhere else. As always, there's a number of different ways that you can support the Decoding Excellence show. The newest way you can support is by heading over to adamringler.com and joining the High Performance Insiders. This is an exclusive community that allows you access to the private articles, the private podcast feed, and digital lecture series that's being hosted behind this community wall. Check it out by heading over to adamringler.com and subscribing today. The second way you could support the show is simply by signing up for the newsletter. This is something I take a lot of pride in. I try to go out on the internet, dig up research articles that are fascinating. I try to find the newest technologies, articles I'm reading, uh, research publications, and just really cool things that I discover that sort of exist between performance science, biology, and technology. I think you'll get a lot of value simply by uh, signing up for the newsletter. I promise you, I will never spam you. I will never sell your information or give this out. I cherish this little small community that I'm, I'm creating with this newsletter. And the last way you can support the show is simply by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. Now, the name is a little misleading. You are actually not buying me a coffee. You're buying the show a coffee. It's a micro donation, anywhere from three, four, five dollars, a latte, a cappuccino at Starbucks, essentially. And you're buying and supporting the show's hosting fees and the ability to deliver great content to your ears weekly. So head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler and buy the Decoding Excellence show a coffee. Buy two coffees, buy five coffees if you're an espresso junkie. So as always, I love you guys. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Stay safe, stay strong. Until next time.